0: Welcome back to my little slice of exploitation hell. You know me by now, Andrew Roberts, a confirmed bachelor sort who's gar -gar for gore and violent filth in horror movies. Imagine my surprise and shock when I discovered that way before I was born, the country I lived in once waged a war of terrible proportions, singling out malevolent so-called video nasties, described as films so shocking in content that they had to be rounded up by the police and burned in a Nazi-esque ceremonial bonfire. I couldn't quite believe that it happened, but it is in fact sadly true. Feeling doubly portrayed, that I wasn't around to enjoy the fun, and that the government had the audacity to say what we could not as adults choose our own evening's viewing, I embarked on a journey to collect all the video nasties and view them to see what the outrage was over. So far, I'm majorly underwhelmed, which led ultimately to this podcast. I'm looking at similar films from the same era as the Nasties, but not the officially listed Nasties themselves, trying to see why these films were not selected, but others were. I want to understand the mentality and logic behind the madness of the selection process. To that end, I choose two films with similar themes or genres from between 1960 and 1990, and I analyse them, I see what makes them tick, and indeed, whether people would be ticked off by them in return. We're leaving the Jallo world behind for a long time now, and for the rest of September we'll be focusing on evil children, to celebrate the going-back-to-school period, where our devilish little angels are all foisted off on the teachers. This week it's Cursed Children Week, featuring two films that host diabolic little girls in the style of Carrie and Regan, each having their own supernatural powers, which they use to torment other kids and the adults around them. Today's films are the Canadian film, Cathy's Curse, and the British film, Suffer Little Children. Both quite different in their execution, but equally both as exploitative. We've already covered the history of kids in horror way back last year when we covered The Children and Bloody Birthday, so we'll skip the class on film studies and just delve straight into the first tasty lesson of the day. *Kathy's Curse. In the 1940s, a mother of two steals away from her house with her five-year-old son George in tow, abandoning both her husband and daughter Laura. Returning home to only find his daughter, he takes her with him and drives off to look for the rest of his family, only to be distracted by a rabbit, causing him to crash into a ditch, killing both of them. Years later in the 70s, George has grown up with a wife, Vivian, and a daughter called Kathy. They move into the property, with George being delighted that Kathy is settling in so easily into the home. Vivian, however, is much more suspicious of the house, having had a nervous breakdown at some point prior to moving in. Cathy eventually goes into the attic and finds a doll, just before she spots a portrait of an her aunt, the young Laura who died in the car crash at the beginning of the film. When some friends of Vivian's arrive later, one of them, Agatha, who's a medium, receives a vision from touching a photograph of George's father. At the same time outside, Cathy is recreating the car crash with some of her friends, down to the smallest details – only for them to be sent home when one of them gets hurt. That night, Kathy becomes extremely agitated when her newfound doll isn't in bed with her, and when waking the next morning, she sees a vision of Laura in a mirror. She seemingly shatters random objects around the house, and when her babysitter Mary comes across the doll, Kathy becomes enraged and telekinetically steals it back from her before forcing her to fall from a window and killing her. Vivian is convinced that she saw her daughter in the window when it happened, and after another mental exhaustion, she questions Cathy about it. Cathy reacts by teleporting repeatedly and instigating poltergeist activity around her mother, frightening Vivian into a complete mental breakdown, requiring her hospitalisation. Forced into another corner, George gets another babysitter called Paul to look after Cathy while he's at work. Agatha comes over to visit later, and finds Paul drunk, while Kathy launches into a foul rant against her, forcing her to leave. As Paul drinks more, he's suddenly frozen as snakes, rats and tarantulas suddenly appear writhing all over him, all while Kathy watches in glee. Later that night, Kathy kills Paul's dog by tightening his collar around its neck. Still intoxicated, Paul tries to grab Kathy's doll from her the next morning, only to severely burn his hand. Agatha, meanwhile, phones Vivian and goes to see her at the house, only to encounter Cathy, who's feigned her mother's identity. The portrait of Laura begins to react with Cathy's power, creating a horrible doppelganger of Agatha, which cackles and insults her. Threatening her further, Agatha then squares to leave and to not tell of what she's experienced. Later that day, George fetches Vivian back from the hospital to return home, only for the house's windows and doors to start slamming shut on her. After going to bed, Vivian is suddenly shocked by touching a blood splatter when going to the toilet, but George dismisses it as just a spilled tonic. The next day, Kathy goes into a pond after spying her reflection looking like Laura and almost drowns before she's saved by George. On the way back home, Vivian goes hysterical after Kathy scratches her on purpose, causing George to shun her for her hysterics. Despondent at her husband's reaction, she goes in the bath, only for the water to run red with blood and for leeches to start attacking her. Paul has Kathy eat her dinner, and then checks on Vivian, who appears to be asleep. She soon awakes and becomes demented, constantly mentioning the filthy doll and mentioning burning it. Paul becomes disturbed at her words and goes back to find Kathy, only to be attacked by Kathy, who supernaturally gouges his chest open using the doll. Witnessing this from the window, Vivian leaves the house in a daze to try and save Paul, but she only finds his mutilated corpse. Going back inside to find Kathy, Vivian is horrified to discover her severely burnt and clutching the doll, calling herself Laura. She seizes the doll from her daughter, only to be attacked by her. George then returns home, but is unable to get inside. Vivian manages to get away from Kathy with the doll and tears its eyes out, releasing Laura's control from her daughter and causing her portrait and lots of the house's ornaments to shatter. As the house returns to normal, Kathy recognises her mother, and all seems well as the film ends. What's going on here? Kathy? Answer me! Oh. Answer me! Jeremy! Jeremy! Oh. Uh. Oh. We have to leave, Mummy, right now! Good Lord, right what now. an afternoon! I- I'm right sorry, now. excuse me, but I think the faster we leave, the better it'll be for all of us, huh? Anyway, thanks for the coffee. I have a feeling the children have got themselves into a situation they just couldn't handle. I hope this demonstration of mine hasn't upset you. It's very strange, though. I usually have a much harder time getting through. But that photo. Well, never mind. I must be going now. It's been very nice meeting you, Vivian. I hope I shall see you again sometime soon. Goodbye. Well been quite an experience, to say the least, Agatha. Do drop by again the next time you're in the neighbourhood. Bye-bye for now. Kathy! Are you going to tell me what went on here? Well, what to say about Kathy's curse? I get the feeling that anyone who's already seen it will roughly know what I'm about to say, and it seems to be one of those films that divides people rather sharply into... Those that love it, or those that detest it. I'm still not quite sure which camp I'm in yet, so maybe we'll revisit that part once I'm done with the analysis. It's a Canadian picture that was released in the late 70s, quite a while after The Exorcist had haunted us in 1973, and just a mere year after Brian De Palma's telekinetic shocker, Carrie. It's immediately apparent, though, from the first frame, that Eddie Matalon's film takes a very different approach to the subject matter of possessed girls. We have a flashback to the 40s where a man called Gimble finds his daughter Laura alone when he returns home, apparently after his wife Joanne has ran out on him with their son George. After making a sniping remark at his wife's behaviour... Your mother's a bitch. She'll pay for what she did to you. ...he takes young Laura away in his car, only to swerve when a rabbit flings across the road, crashing into a tree, whereupon the car is quickly wreathed in fire, killing the pair. This opening sequence, while very short is rather symptomatic of what's in store for us with the entire film. It's clod-hoppingly inept. The first element is the way that the film is shot. The picture is incredibly lousy, boasting an efflorescence of murky greens and browns, almost like the film stock was dipped in a particularly stagnant pond. The image is frequently dark, and the editing is rather jarring and quite amateur in nature. The editing process itself isn't necessarily a major issue, but the combination of the bad picture makes the film feel like a massive chore to watch. What's also a chore is the film's storyline, which is so devoid of either narrative fulfilment or any explanation of why we see what we do. For example, it quickly becomes apparent that little Kathy is possessed by the spirit of Laura, seemingly out of sheer anger at a haphazardly accomplished death. This is all fine and dandy, but... Was Laura ever supernaturally gifted? Was she a problem child? Why did Laura's mother even abandon her? Why would Joanne pay for what she did to Laura? I mean, so much is unexplained that it really defies reason why a little girl's spirit would return 30 years later to inflict random supernatural hauntings on a bunch of random family members later on in the bloodline. More to the matter is the fetter of Kathy's powers. It seems alternately that her portrait has something to do with the possession, and then sometimes her doll. I mean, her doll clearly should be the conduit, since its destruction, i.e. gentle removal of the eyes, causes the curse to be lifted. But then why does her portrait shatter? There's a real blend of mixed messages on Laura's character, which can be blamed on the characters themselves, which we'll get onto in a moment. But ultimately, there's just very little explanation for lots of things. Agatha, too, arrives at a couple of points in the film, but... Then she just disappears after suffering a particularly intense fright from Kathy's doings. Why is she even introduced if she's just going to be thrown away? Why is Paul treated well at certain moments, but then terrorised at others? How does Vivian know that the doll's destruction is the key? How does George not notice the things that are going awry, including one of his favourite statues being broken? Why would his mother have a thick, viscous red tonic in the closet? And for more purposes, why is it still there? What kind of hospital allows an institutionalisation for just a few days? I mean, there's so many questions that are left unsolved in Cathy's Curse that it's practically a special feature of this particular film. Christopher Nolan would spin in his grave. If he was indeed deceased, that is. The characters are one of the other film's problems. They all act so bizarrely. Not only are the acting styles all over the place, ranging from the relatively creepy and deadpan Cathy to the uncomfortable, rhythmic, staccato delivery of Vivian. But their behaviour, too, is just unnatural. I mean, let's take the god-awful Agatha, who's having a violent, frightful vision of the car crash and speaking in devilish tones, only to then quite casually stand up and thank Vivian for the tea and company before buggering off. Everybody's reactions and behaviours are just so odd and contrary to normal behaviour that it does leave you a little slack-jawed at times. After having a violent attack from blood and leeches, Vivian then somehow manages to go to sleep rather soundly, while Paul goes from being a drunk to frozen still when phantom creepy crawlies emerge all over him, which is perfectly reasonable, until he starts moving again halfway through the ordeal for no reason, despite still being covered. Even George is almost unforgivably passive, even more so than Lucy from House by the Cemetery, and this is a woman who completely ignores the fact that there's a pool of blood in her kitchen floor. In one of the most glaringly obvious bits, though, Vivian sees Kathy disappear and teleport to another completely faraway area. But rather than be utterly blown away, she basically gets mildly irritated, as if this was a common naughty child's behaviour. Even Mary, the ill-fated housekeeper, has these strange lapses in perception, especially during a breakfast scene where Kathy clearly throws a plate across the room and smashes it. Though Mary treats it as though it was an accident. She even bends down to pick the shards up and says, there, that's done. Even though, really, obviously, there's loads of smashed crockery still left on the floor. Even the antagonist Kathy's powers are just all over the place with what she can do, some of which don't even really make much sense. Like, why would she make her own food go rotten? Basically, it's rather unique in that nothing in the film feels natural or comfortable, which, in certain terms, is actually a good thing, considering it's meant to be unsettling. But too often, though, I fear it just comes across as bad. There's certainly elements of the film that I like, though. I mean, for one, despite its awful technical hitches and acting flaws, it does have a rather hypnotic staying power. I didn't really stop watching the film or, like, let my eyes wander, simply because I was so affixed by the poor quality. It kind of rides the winds of Tommy Wiseau's The Room, uh, The Mad Foxes and Don't Go in the Woods, of being so hilariously inept that it ultimately becomes a rather entertaining piece of filmmaking. And some of the set pieces too are actually of massive interest, simply just for their bizarre nature, like the snakes, rats and spiders crawling over Paul, some of which actually emerge from a drawer. The foul-mouthed doppelganger of Agatha in the attic is also very visually interesting, as was the bath of blood and the subsequent leeches. It's also a nice idea to have Cathy looking burnt towards the climax to reflect Laura's fate, but the effect does come off as a bit cheap-looking. The music, too, adds to the rather jarring, disjointed feel that the film boasts, so the film is quite appealing in its own way. Also, like the aforementioned The Room, plot points do crop up and then almost become instantly abandoned, like the whole mental hospital thing, the completely out-of-the-blue attempted grabbing of Kathy by Paul, the sudden misogyny towards Agatha by both Paul and Kathy, etc., etc., I mean, they come and go so quickly, I could easily see a rather fun drinking game to be had with this film. Ultimately, I'd say that I'd probably watch it again, but I'd absolutely insist on watching a better copy. I think banishing the technical awfulness in the picture would at least allow people to watch it for the laughs alone, without being bogged down by the muddy, murky picture and sound. George was played by British actor Alan Scarf, who had some TV appearances in Alien Nation, and MacGyver, before appearing in action films like Double Impact and Lethal Weapon 3. Beverly Murray, who played Vivian, had previously appeared in the controversial Belgian film Sweet Movie, before going on to have a minor appearance in Friday the 13th, the series. Dorothy Davis, who played Mary, she'd previously appeared in David Cronenberg's Shivers and Night Fright, which was humorously rebranded and marketed in the UK as ETN, the Extraterrestrial Nasty, completely plagiarising the advertising for Steven Spielberg's ET. Sonny Forbes, who played the very small role of the inspector, was also no stranger to Canadian exploitation, appearing in three of David Cronenberg's films in very small roles, such as Shivers, Rabid and Scanners, the latter two of which ended up being seized as video nasties. He also appeared in the film Ilsa, the Tigress of Siberia. Finally, Peter McNeil, who played the 1940s version of Gimbal, was also in David Cronenberg's films such as Rabid and 1996's Crash, but he has also cropped up in 1990's Stella, the science fiction film Frequency from 2000, and also 2005's Cinderella Man. But that's about it, really, for the cast. There's not too many well-known faces in this one, for probably obvious reasons. Director Eddie Matalon didn't really do many other productions of note, other than the film Blackout the year after Cathy's Curse was released. Matalon wrote the film's screenplay in collaboration with Alain sens Casanave, who was also the assistant director on both this film and a small selection of Italian films, like The Scorpion with Two Tails, Iron Master, and 2019 After the Fall of New York. Cinematographer Jean-Jacques Tarbet was basically a pornographic cameraman whose other works were almost fully in that genre. That might account for some of the weirdness of the shots, since he's actually got no naked subjects to focus on in this film. The editing on the film is also a good example of too many cooks spoil the broth, as three people worked in this department on the film. The first, Laurent Quaglio, mainly went on to sound editing in his later career, working on The Ninth Gate and March of the Penguins. The others, Pierre Rose and Micheline Thuan, did virtually nothing else. Finally, the makeup artist, Julia Grundy, had only three credits to her name, one of which was the 1973 thriller The Picks, with Karen Black and Christopher Plummer. But that's pretty much it for the crew, too. This is a really low-budget effort with very little in the way of star treatment. The film debuted in 1977 in Canadian and French cinemas to a rather mild response, and mostly getting negative reviews. It did make it to the US in 1980, and I assume it ran on the grindhouse circuits for a while before being relegated to home video. It debuted in the UK on such a medium, being released by Intervision on VHS in 1982, right in the midst of the nasty scare. This is quite interesting, as Intervision were already up shit creek for releasing loads of the video nasties, like Cannibal Man and Expose, so Cathy's curse would certainly have warranted at least a cursory examination. The theme of children and death would also have been rather controversial, for the same reason that the child and phantasm were seized by the authorities. There is no actual proof, though, that it was seized, however, so it's one of those instances that you just have to imagine... The pre-cert version would have been outlawed anyway with the introduction of the Video Recordings Act after the nasty scare was over, so the next available version was the Apex VHS version. It's unknown though what year this was actually released, especially as the BBFC have no information regarding that release. The cover did have an 18 certificate though, so I assume it was a legit copy. It's also unknown which cut of the film this was, as even though there's been no formal censorship on the film, various scenes are added and cut from the countless video versions of the film. Regardless, this version is virtually non-existent now, and the film is technically unavailable in the UK anyway. Thankfully for fans of Kathy Severin Films restored the film using the original negative for a Blu-ray release, and fans have virtually lauded this version as it restores every scene to make a complete version, and it's restored the picture quality with all the murkiness and the darkness gone. See, I'd be really interested in seeing this version, as it would remove a major peeve that I had with the film, and it would just allow me to wallow in the complete alien actions of the film's players. So, that was Cathy's Curse. Let's get on to our next film, Suffer Little Children. (laughs) I just like Starting with a message that the film is a recreation of actual events that happened in Surrey during the 80s, we are shown the Sullivan's Children's Home, run by the owner Morris and his assistant Jenny. On an early Sunday morning, a mute girl called Elizabeth shows up on the doorstep with a note asking the home to look after her. After some minor investigations, it appears that her appearance is shrouded in mystery, with nothing in her possessions to help identify where she's come from. Introducing her to other kids, Natalie, Henry and Sarah, Elizabeth is taken aback when Sarah makes a rude remark due to her mute state. Elizabeth, in reaction, seemingly causes a door to slam on her and hurting her. The next day, a previous occupant of the home, who's now a successful musician called Mick, visits with his music partner, Hustler, to do a charity show for the children, causing the majority of the kids to burst with excitement. As the pair go around the home, meeting the other staff, Kath and Elaine, eventually Mick spies Elizabeth and tries to talk to her. She beckons at the cross around his neck, and he gives it to her as a gift. Later that night, she disturbs her roommates Jules and Carol's sleep by forcing them to suffer a nightmare in which they're pursued by zombies, only to then suddenly have them seated next to her at a picnic, which causes them to awaken and then go over to sleep in Elizabeth's bed with her. The next day, all three of them lure a boy called Basil to the top of a flight of stairs, only for him to end up mysteriously falling down them and hurting himself seriously. Jenny and Morris interrogate Jules and Carol about what happened, only to hear strangely rehearsed excuses from the pair. Assuming that the two were bullying Elizabeth, Morris assumes that the girls tried to steal her cross, and Basil intervened, causing the accident. Jules and Carol end up playing strange cult-like games with Elizabeth at night, while Mick invites Jenny on a date at a nightclub. While the night goes on, it seems becomes apparent that Elizabeth is there somehow, who seems to use her powers to ruin the night, such as forcing a man to make a move on Mick, to then having someone announce Mick's presence, swarming him in excited dancers. A few days later, Jenny is in a panic after some of the children nearly drown on a school trip to the swimming pool, especially since she perceives that Carol and Jules were purposely trying to stop her from saving them while Morris is more concerned at the idea that six children began to drown at the same time. Later that day, Mick comes over to put on a small show for the kids to keep them occupied, and while he and Morris exchange words, screams erupt from the dance, where several children are attacking each other, whilst Elizabeth and her flock look on and laugh. Jenny and Morris begin to get suspicious of Elizabeth as all the strange events start happening when she's arrived, and true to form, a girl called Terry inexplicably goes berserk during breakfast and cuts Morris's hand with a knife. Shortly afterwards, Elizabeth, Jules and Carol band together and hold Morris's office door closed and cause a hail of poltergeist activity to erupt in the room, scaring both Morris and Jenny. She then gives knives and kitchen utensils to loads of kids and beckons them to follow her instructions, such as going upstairs and making Elaine stab herself to death using a knife. In the attic, Elizabeth dons a sheet and has the children worship her, while Mick and Hustler arrive and let Jenny and Morris go from the office. The group go in different directions, with Jenny leaving to get help, and they're attacked en masse by the now-possessed children, who kill Morris by stabbing him to death with a cricket wicket before running a knife through the back of his head. Hustler is also killed on the stairs when three children ambush him and stab him to death. An injured Mick makes it to the attic, only for Carol and Jules to crucify him to the wall, killing him. The kids, now completely overcome with zeal, chant for the devil himself to arrive. Elizabeth ages into a woman in a mere instant, whilst Mick's body detaches itself from the wall. Just as Elizabeth is about to wreak more havoc, Mick rises as the figure of Jesus Christ, who causes the trio to die screaming as they writhe in pain and agony. Leaving only the crucifix behind, the remaining children are petrified of the scene of carnage, leaving Jenny to scream as she returns to the house and discover the bodies. <laughs> Right no, okay, kids, first things first. Basil's in intensive care. We don't know what condition he's in or if he's going to get better. So we want to find out just what happened, right? Now, who wants to go first? He just fell. That's right. He was just climbing up the stairs. And he killed that fact and just fell. Honest, Morris. Really? Lady, right on. one minute he's all right going up the stairs. The next thing he just falls down again. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Yeah, that's still right, Morris. It's the truth, Morris. Promise. No, kids, I have to admit that I'm a bit surprised. Why is that, Jenny? Okay, I'll tell you why I'm surprised. First I see Basil at the bottom of the stairs. Then I see Elizabeth at the top. Then suddenly I see you two appear. Fair enough, accidents do happen. But the way you, both of you, are trying to pass it off so cleverly, well, quite frankly, it makes me a bit suspicious. Yeah, I know just what she means, kids. There's something about your attitude that uh, suddenly makes me think you're all reversed with your answers. That's not fair. We haven't done anything. You haven't been in trouble before. Yeah, you can't blame us for what happened to Basil. Until you mentioned it, there was no question of blaming anyone. The way you two are talking, it sounds as if you've got something to hide. Why is this? First you try and find out what happened to Basil, and when we tell you, you try to stick the blame on us. Yeah, you better be careful with your accusations, Morris. Listen, miss, you just remember where you are. And I won't have any lip from either of you. So get that into your heads right from the start. And if you decide to stick together with your answers, then we'll just have to find a way to separate them. Maybe that way we can avoid accusations and tempers. All right, right now we'll have a written statement. Yeah, come on, straight up. So you can't believe it. Now, let's see what you come up with when you're not listening to one another. And I don't want to hear a single word from either one of you. All right? Okay. Oh... Just when you think you've seen it all. After watching Suffer Little Children, I was half tempted to retitle this episode as really inept cursed children films, as I seem to have inadvertently placed two clunkers together in the same episode, but of course, let's just try to be professional and soldier on. It's immediately apparent that Suffer Little Children is not going to be a thing of great beauty. It's one of those few ambitious horror projects that's completely shot on video, Stuff like Sledgehammer, 1989's Things, uh, 555, Blood Cult and Boarding House all had the distinct feel of the VHS for good reason. All of these productions were shot on video, a term more specific and iconic of the 80s and 90s whereby a crew would eschew the traditional method of having a full camera rig and crew and use instead a single camcorder or video camera that was most often handheld. Because of the cheap filming method, productions of this nature often end up being quite amateur in technique and execution, featuring undressed sets like people's houses or back gardens, very cheap special effects and a surplus of outrageous content like nudity, gore and sex to make up for the relative cheapness of the production. Nowadays, shot on video has kind of been assimilated into the found footage genre, with not as many shot on video examples that we used to have, but There are a few exceptions, like 2004's Bone Sickness or 2014's Uneasy Lies the Mind. The film began life, though, when the director Alan Briggs used to work as a music promoter for one of the UK's biggest music venues, the Brixton Academy in London. He eventually became one of the highest paid promoters in the UK, until a divorce basically left him broke and without any income behind him. He remarried in the early 80s to a woman called Meg Shanks, who owned and ran a drama school, with pupils ranging from the age of 8 all the way up to the age of 30. In late 1982, Briggs decided to use the school to make a film for various reasons, first of which was to discover and showcase any talent in the Children for Future promotion, Secondly, Briggs' experience in promoting would help teach the school to sell similar projects in the future, and thirdly, they wanted to see if they could make some income from the project too. The script was not really written in a traditional sense, rather it was devised, not unlike most drama schools through trial and error and some discussions before acting it out. It took roughly 14-15 to days to shoot the film, on a budget of just £7,000. The house that was used was from a row of derelict terraced houses just around the corner from Meg Shanks' drama school. The house that was in the best condition had no staircase, initially, and so they basically tore one from next door and set it up in the house that they wanted to use. During the film's bloody climax, Briggs actually says that the children who were attacking the adults were having an amazing time and had a real lot of fun with the fake blood and gore. The parents, too, were very enthusiastic, such as driving the film crew around and paying for accommodation and food at hotels. In fact, this enthusiasm of the cast and crew is probably the only thing that holds Suffer Little Children together, as the film itself is just rather dull and tedious. This is down to several factors, really, which we'll go through in chunks. Firstly, the film quality lets it down majorly. I'm not usually bothered by shot-on-video stuff if the content and the shooting style is interesting, but Suffer Little Children is just rather basic when it comes to the shots. There's nothing really visually interesting, bar a few cliché compositions during the climactic worshipping sequence. The editing is also very cheap and amateurish, resulting in some quite jarring transitions and confusing narrative structures. The set is basically someone's house and garden, which isn't necessarily bad, but it's painfully obvious as it looks nothing like a children's home would. Even for the UK, it literally looks like a house they've just done up for the film, which, of course, is what it is. It has that same quality as the film you'd make on your iPhone with a bunch of friends, with an almost forever audible camera buzz and then a crackle on the sounds. The story is likewise nothing too special, and it borrows liberally from other more successful works, like The Exorcist and The Omen. Elizabeth, our Regan slash Damien stand-in, arrives on the doorstep of a children's home with an explanatory letter and proceeds to torment the other children, hypnotising some of them as her underlings before going into a full-fledged slaughter of them in the climax. This wouldn't be so bad in terms of narratives, but we literally know nothing about Elizabeth at all, other than she's the typical pantomime villain with evil eyes. Her origins are never explained, her ultimate end goal is never explored, and her powers range wildly in execution. There's a few decent plot points that get a little lost along the way, like Mick's action of gifting her with a cross that she really seems to like. It sort of seems to become more iconic when Mick's corpse is possessed by the spirit of Christ, perhaps inspired by this gesture early on, but it does end up feeling arbitrary and throwaway. So too is the detail of Elizabeth maturing into a woman when she's had enough of a clan around her. I mean, was this her goal all along? To become an adult somehow through arcane worship? These plot points are mildly interesting in retrospect, but they're never really prominent enough when watching it to really ponder about. Some of the other sequences also have this potential, but they're just marred by the way that they're shot – such as Jules and and Carol's Possession taking place in a dream sequence, one that involves zombies, no less. A really interesting idea, but it's just rendered a bit flat by the editing and the lack of good sound effects. So too is the scene of Mick and Jenny out at a nightclub, which somehow Elizabeth is present at. There's an interesting idea that Elizabeth uses a gay guy to make a move on Mick in order to ruin the date, as well as subsequently causing everyone in the club to notice him at once, flooding him with unwanted attention. Well, you know, it might be offensive to some that gay men in this film are literally the devil's messengers. I find it quite funny and an interesting idea, but again, like most no, most of the movie, the f- way that the scene is framed and shot, it just kills the thing almost completely. That's not to mention some of the padding scenes as well that are clearly inserted to waste time, such as when Jenny goes outside and just plays innocently with some leaves, laughing as though she's in an advert for Timote. It's a shame, really, that the overwhelming feeling that the film gives is tedium, because it genuinely looks like the cast were just having fun. The fun is genuinely felt in the climax, though, which is probably the film's only saving grace – in which the adults and some of the kids are butchered in various ways by the possessed children. The special effects are not terribly amazing, but they're enthusiastic, especially enough to be charming, anyway. Elaine ends up stabbing her leg repeatedly, and quite a harrowing bit, whilst Morris is stabbed countless times with a cricket wicket before having a knife driven through the back of his head. Hustler is stabbed countless times in the chest, with some of his killers getting a knife in them too, while the saviour, Mick, is literally crucified against the wall. It's quite a protracted scene, too, which makes it all the more enjoyable. The subsequent scene, though, of Jesus Christ smiting down the infidels with holy light would be fun as well if it just didn't go on for so long. And we were treated to a very long, flashy strobe light sequence where Jules, Carol and Elizabeth are writhing madly in pain as they're being killed by the Almighty. It is a rather disturbing effect, too. It just goes on for far too long, enough to kind of kill it. Still, not many horror films can boast that the Son of God literally turns up and kills the bad guys, so there's that at least. Lastly, there's the characters, who are all so matter-of-fact and incidental that no one except Elizabeth is really unique enough to be mentioned. The love triangle thing between Jenny, Morris and Mick is only half-acidly explored, and then it's dropped anyway when the climactic slaughter begins – The dinner lady, Elaine, is pretty much only introduced to off her quite nastily during the end sequence. And the countless kids are pretty much just sounding boards for the film's small talk. The only thing endearing about them is the fact that they're British. It's just quite charming to have normal British characters in a horror film of this era, as it didn't really happen that often. It's quite funny to hear all the classic telling-off methods that adults use against kids in the UK, as well as the I don't know and nothing responses that kids give. It certainly reminds me of my childhood when I used to get into trouble. In closing, Suffer Little Children isn't really going to be winning any awards anytime soon, and it probably only still remains known to this day for its troubled release history, which we'll now get into because the film is also so obscure that none of the cast or crew did anything else. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. Another potential reason about why people still remember this is actually the rather catchy theme tune. The film was picked up by a company called Films Galore, which was run by a rather dubious chap called George Goody, who apparently claimed to have visited aliens across the universe, and he also secretly harboured a desire to be Fagin from Oliver Twist with child thieves as his underlings. By January 1983, during the peak of the Nasties scandal – I mean, they really should have known better – the film had a rough print done to submit to the BBFC, which was seen and returned with advice that to grant it an 18 certificate, the film required around two minutes of cuts. The owner of Films Galore, though, George Goody, went against the wishes of Alan Briggs and released an unfinished work print of the film without a BBFC certificate and without a final edit. Big no-no. The few stores that took these copies began selling them under the counter, making sort of sleazy claims that they weren't legally allowed to sell them yet, but they were waiting for the right to be granted. The police, therefore, raided Films Galore in the same month and seized the master tapes, leading to a rather embittered battle between Films Galore and the DPP, who kept the tapes for several months. Not only was the Obscene Publications Act mentioned as being breached, but also the Protection of Children Act due to the scenes of violence involving children. Presumably, the unfinished work prints were also seized from the offending stores that had them. But either way, films galore were now losing money rapidly, as not only were the advertising agencies now without any promotional material, but hundreds of pre-orders on the film's VHS release were not being fulfilled, leading Goody to file a claim against the police for all the revenue that he was losing due to the seizure. The ensuing negative publicity as well meant that the acting school owned by Meg Shanks was continually harassed, forcing them to close down, while Shanks herself was repeatedly stopped in the street and had insults thrown at her, accusing her of harming children. Films Galore was at one point reportedly close to liquidation, until finally the police released the master tapes in April, signalling that the film could, after all, be released after certification. Presumably, after the film got its legitimate release on video in late 83, people probably realised what sort of production it was, as not only did the VHS seem to disappear without much fanfare, but Meg Shanks' drama school also managed to reopen, albeit on new premises. For all intents and purposes, the film was in fact then a video nasty in all but name. It was seized by the police, and it was examined for potential obscenity. This VHS though, cut by two minutes from Films Galore, was the only version released in the whole world, as the film was literally a local production shot on video. It disappeared by the end of the 80s, and it wouldn't see the light of day again anywhere until 2017 when Severin released an uncut version on DVD with several extras including a history of the film's issues. This is to date the only version of the film available, and considering the origins of the production, it's also probably the best looking it's ever going to be. It's worth a look if you're into the bottom of barrel exploitation, but don't expect much. That was Suffer Little Children and the resounding end to our episode this week. Sorry that it was a little short. It's just that these two films were very, very, very tough to watch. But thanks as ever for listening. And as some of you will now know, it's been a whole year since I started Nasty Pasty. So a huge, huge thank you to anyone who's been with us on the journey so far. Next week, we're remaining on the child horror theme with two films concerning child cults. They are Children of the Corn... And beware children at play. But to celebrate our one year, we've also got some bonus episodes coming out shortly, which was announced on our social media page. There's another child-centric shocker coming in just a few days, with an episode featuring who can kill a child. And we've got one of the minisodes coming back as well, focusing on black and white examples of the genres that we know and love today, where I'll be covering the atomic ant movie Them. But until then, see you all next time on the Nasty Pasty, and take care of yourselves in the meantime. Ta-ra!